0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Patriot to the Core podcast. I am Thad Forrester. Thank you for listening this week. Uh, This is episode number 13, and I'm having a lot of fun doing this, so I hope you're having at least a little bit of fun listening, and I hope you're maybe spreading the word and telling people about it. Uh, Today's guest is Michael Yon. If you haven't heard of him, I do encourage you to at least go look him up on his website, uh, michaelyon-online.com. Uh, He's easy to find. I mean, he's been on all the major news outlets uh, multiple times. Um, He's got a Wikipedia page, so easy to find, but this is going to be a very interesting conversation. We're going to cover a wide variety of topics, so I hope you enjoy this. I'll go ahead and bring on Michael now. Thank you, uh, Michael. It is actually an honor and pleasure to have you on my show. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, so after some technical difficulties, glad we're finally able to, to see or to speak and to hear each other
1: yeah we made it somehow <laughs>
0: <laughs> well and and i don't hear any um loud banging going on at the temple construction either
1: i can hear it it's out the door but luckily they might be taking a break right now
0: okay we'll, we'll try to get everything in we can then um so, hey so so first of all uh, i watched an interview you did with dennis miller and dennis miller called you the premier combat journalist Uh, Which I would have to agree with him on that. Why would, what qualifies you for that?
1: Well, Dennis is very generous to me. He's always been very, very kind. Uh, Well, I never trained to be a journalist. I never trained, I I don't call myself a journalist. I'm a writer. Uh, But, um, you know, I never trained with photography uh, or with writing either. I just, uh, I lost a couple of friends in the war and then decided to go over there and see for myself what was going on. And, um, and then I just, you know, stuck with it. I just stuck in combat more than according to New York times, I think more than anybody. Uh, I just, you know, like the one unit I stayed with for five months, other units I would stay with, you know, one, two, three, four months, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, all that experience adds up after about, you know, several years of combat, four years, I guess, uh, you know you you build a reservoir of experience that allows you to say things that are uh, you know that that hit hit home with the soldiers yeah so
0: how do you uh who do you what organizi- what group do you go through so you can get embedded with these uh teams
1: well the easiest way to do it and i recommend this to other war correspondents is to contact the specific unit that you want to go with right and instead of going through the public affairs office you know at the higher level go at the lower level contact and say hey this is who i am here's an example of my work will you take me along and normally they'll just say yeah come on over you because you know they don't have anything to hide you know they want to show and you know, they they want to show what their soldiers are doing and that sort of thing so once the commander gives permission for you to come or gives you know his uh uh you know or her in some cases uh uh, approval. Then usually it's very fast. So if you go through the unit first, then it's very fast to get in.
0: Okay. So so what are your rules for for you when you're there? Because it gets it gets uh, rowdy. You know, it gets dangerous. And I'd like to talk about some of those instances. But what are you allowed not to, uh, allowed to do and not to do?
1: Well, some of it's just uh, like. You're not allowed, obviously, to talk about missions before they happen, that sort of thing. Kind of basic uh, stuff on that level, like you can't talk about, you know, how many aircraft took off and how many came back, that sort of thing. Um, So, you know, basic operational security is always an important factor um, because you do get exposed to a lot of secret and top secret stuff. There's no way not to, right? I mean, because you're you're constantly just doing missions all the time. Sometimes I would do – you know, even more than one mission per day, sometimes several missions in one day. Um, so you, you know, just basic kind of common sense type stuff. Okay. And no weapon. Is that right? No weapon. Uh, one time I did fire a weapon in combat that was, uh, illegal and the army was not happy about it, but it was, there was a soldier that was shot and, um, and uh, I didn't want him to get shot again. <laughs> well, and there was some hand-to-hand combat going on.
0: Well, listen, that—that is one I want to talk about. Let's just talk about it now because uh, I read about this in your short little book, you know, um, Gates of Fire. Right. And uh, I just learned about this book recently, so I down I downloaded it on my iPad and uh, read it. It's you know it's it's a quick read. So, um, you know, I guess uh, Prosser. Here it is, Robert Prosser, uh, his, his men are... Maybe you can tell the story, because... Actually, I want to read one line from, from your book right here, or a few sentences. It says, Prosser shot the man at least four times with his M4 rifle, but the American M4 rifles are weak. After Prosser, after Prosser landed three nearly point-blank shots in the man's abdomen, splattering a testicle with a fourth, the man just staggered back, regrouped, and tried to shoot Prosser. Do you mind elaborating on this and, and just telling us what happened? Because this was this this was very captivating.
1: You know, I don't like M4s. Actually, the the platform is very good. The platform of, of an M4 is very good, but that bullet is so weak. You see, so many people get shot, and then they just keep fighting and fighting. It needs a bigger bullet, anyway. But that's a side topic on firearms. <laughs> but uh, but no, what happened? That you know, what happened was the night before we did a mission. I think it was a raid. And um, I was very tired. Went back to my chew, the you know the little uh, chew is um, like a trailer that you sleep in. I went back there and I fell asleep. The next thing you know, Rob Prosser is banging on my door, and the sun's already up. And he's like, "Let's go, Uh, Sergeant Llama's been shot, right? Sergeant Daniel Llama had got shot in the neck by a sniper, Uh, but he was okay. It just grazed the back of his neck. Um, And so we went down to the the cache, the combat support hospital, to to see Daniel and, and then Eric Carilla, who was the commander, called up his mom and was like, hey, he's OK. You might get word from the Department of the Army that he's been shot, but he's fine. We're here right now. Daniel is fine. He was up on his feet. And um, so we went down looking for the sniper, which I thought, you know, we're not going to find the sniper. But we did, you know, and uh, the, we actually found him and started chasing him with the helicopters and uh, and also in the striker vehicles. And uh, next thing you know, we drop ramps, chase them down. This first of all, arrested the wrong guys and released them immediately because realized that they're not the right guys. And um, so only had them for a few minutes. And then there was a firefight around the corner. We run down that alley, and uh, Eric is in front of me. Eric, the Eric Krill the commander. I just spoke with him the other night. Actually, he's the commander of the 82nd Airborne now. But uh, so we're going down that alley, and I I keep my camera attached to my body armor because um, that way I can keep my hands free, right? And um, but when you're running, you have to hold the camera; it'll hit you in the face. Hmm. And so we were running down the alley, and um, and my camera would shoot at what five frames a second. So you know we were in combat, so I just kept the, my finger on the the shutter release, and it was shooting at five frames a second. And then Eric got shot right in front of me, um, three times actually. Hit broke one of his femurs in half and uh, hitting a bicep, I believe, and then the other leg as well. And he rolled. At first, I didn't realize he was shot. Actually, I thought he did a. I'd seen him do a lot of combat already, so I, you know, he's, he's a very athletic guy. You know what I mean? So I just thought he was rolling to shoot the guy, but he was actually hit. And finally, as I recall, he was, you know, he was in front of that doorway. And I I was like, what's wrong with you? You know, because he was just like sitting there. You know what I mean? He goes, I'm hit. I am shot three times. He was right, actually. Um, And so uh, but he was fighting back. He was fighting back like a man. (laughs) So he was game on. And um, when that guy was trying to shoot him, and then there was a lieutenant there. That lieutenant had never been in combat before. And uh, and it was strange because you know we had what what 100 I guess Eric was 183rd casualty in that battalion, um, and I think the lieutenant was a replacement for somebody if I recall correctly. It's been since 2005 you know. and uh, I told the lieutenant I told him to get in there and fight as I recall, and he 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 did, just didn't know what to do, which was very strange for me because that unit's very aggressive. But he was new you know what I mean mm-hmm. first fire fight we're in this alley you know what I mean it's kind of loud you know we get into you know these alley firefights get pretty loud and um so I told him to throw a grenade in there and he didn't he didn't have a grenade and uh, I remember sergeant major ran by uh, Prosser good friend of mine he runs by I didn't know it was him actually I, it was just to me it was a green blur ran by or a brown blur you know, not wear his brown uniform and um so I was looking back. I was looking back over my shoulder because I thought we might get hit from the back. You know what I mean? So he was fighting one way. I'm looking the other way. Um, and then I turn around. You know, the shooting stopped. And I turn around, and, um, and I see a bloody American leg in there. And I said, oh, oh no. Uh, I thought one of our guys was dead. And then Eric is still, you know, shot up in front of the doorway, you know, just feet away. Now, that's when I saw his rifle. I picked up uh, Rob's rifle, and it was empty. He'd, he'd emptied the whole magazine because it was dark. You know, it's very bright outside, right? So your eyes are adjusted for the really bright. Um, you know, it's really bright in Iraq, but it was dark inside the uh, you know the 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 uh, warehouse there. Uh-huh. So wow. um, so I, I just saw his bloody American leg. You know, I was like, oh no. Uh, Picked up that rifle and it was empty, and that, yeah, and so I told the lieutenant to give me some ammunition, which he actually did, and um, and then I just went around the corner and tried to draw fire, but I shot a propane canister instead. Uh, that was that didn't work out so good. That was a big joke for the unit, and I think will always be a big joke for the unit. <laughs> I was like, well, I hit it right in the middle, though, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> And um, so, anyway, you know, the hand to hand combat ended. You know, that's probably the only series from both of the wars, Iraq or Afghanistan, where there's, I mean, a soldier's getting shot. My friend Eric is getting shot in, you know, right when I snapped the photo. And then there's hand to hand combat, as you can see from those photos. Pretty, pretty, pretty wild series, you know? Yeah. Uh, You know, the some of the guys at the Pentagon got angry that I fired the rifle. I was like, man, you know, what are you going to do? Watch an American soldier get killed. Are you going to, you know what I'm saying? Exactly. <laughs> well, and you kept, uh, you
0: or maybe one of the other guys was saying, you, you didn't know for sure how Prosser was because the way he was laying, you could see his legs, but you couldn't see maybe his upper body. And, uh, he was actually he was fighting the guy laying down, right?
1: Yeah. Strangling. He was strangling him. Uh, and he said, Rob told me later, he said, Mike, I almost had him, and you shot that propane caster, and he woke up again. And uh, he said he was – the guy was biting Rob's watch. You know how you wear your watch with the face inside your wrist, right? Yeah. The guy was biting the face of his watch. It was just game on. It was an Al-Qaeda dude. Uh, I think he died eight months later. I think his name was Khalid Yassim Noah. I think he died eight months later. But he was shot up, you know, in, in that – uh, M4 rifle so weak, man. I just, it's such a great platform, but the bullets are so weak.
0: Well, <laughs> well, I guess he he, he he went those next eight months with only one testicle. That's right, he did. Oh god.
1: No, and they were in the same uh, hospital uh, together too. I, so we'd go back to the hospital and you know take Eric back to the hospital. And Eric, he's he's all morphined up or whatever they're putting him on, right? But he's trying to stay awake. He's still trying to give orders. I mean, he's a total commander. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, even when he was shot on the ground, he was really shot bad. You know, and he's like, get the snipers up, get all this, you know.
0: <laughs> wow. And he's the one that had the broken femur from getting shot, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, he's, just a, he's a commander to the end. You know, he did combat every year from 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. I think all the way up until 2014 or 15, he did combat every single year. Unbelievable.
0: His body has Uh, just got to be just beaten, broken. Man,
1: that guy, they called him Gorilla the Gorilla.
0: (laughs) That that sounds like a good name for him.
1: I told him the other night, I said, you know what? You're like half geek and half gorilla because he's an incredibly intelligent guy, you know. Uh, But man, when it comes to combat. That's not somebody you want to deal with.
0: <laughs> Man. So that was, uh, I guess it may, you were embedded with some pretty good dudes and then you had it, the, the, the Lieutenant. And then I don't know, it sounded like a few guys that just were almost like, um, dazed and confused. I mean, they just weren't doing anything.
1: It was two. It was two. It was okay. Lieutenant. the uh, Specialist. And, but neither one of them, oddly, well, the Lieutenant was new because he had, he'd just come in from the United States and, uh, and that was the, like at the end of the tour you know what I mean so we'd been in a lot of combat and um and the specialist he was a he worked in the talk the you know the tactical uh, operations center right so he worked in the headquarters so he never he never actually went into combat until that day he, he was out there that day because the uh, uh, Eric Carillas's normal uh, security guy was down in Baghdad we were in Mosul he was down in Baghdad um I think he was testifying in a trial, right, for somebody that, that the unit had arrested. So he, he was not there, and that guy—he uh, was a real combat stud, but he wasn't there. So the specialist was there, and he just hadn't seen any combat, you know. And you get into these—you know—these alley fights; they're they're pretty scary, you know what I mean? They're, they, uh you know, if you if you've not been in combat before, you might you might uh, have a problem there, which both of those guys did, but. But not, not obviously not Rob Crosser. He jumped right in there and went hand to hand combat.
0: Yeah, you know, you just don't. I don't think you hear much of. There's not much hand to hand going on here in these modern days, is it?
1: Yeah. Well, actually, I I would have thought that as well. But both Iraq and Afghanistan, there was hand to hand. There was both places. Uh, not not a huge amount, but enough that it's not uncommon. Okay. Uh, okay. For instance, um, on another mission, I, I wasn't—I didn't go on this mission. I think I was asleep because I'd just done another mission before that, and I was back on the base. But Eric was out there, and Rob was there again, I think. And they got these guys. I think they were Tunisians. I think it was three of them. And so they were in this house, and they're amped up, man. These guys use drugs. They use a lot of drugs. And uh, they'll use a, a speed, uh, some combination of speed. I've forgotten what the combination is, but so they get into this big hand to hand fight, the guys get back on base, they're like, You should have been there, man. I was like, Well, I was asleep, I think. <laughs> but uh uh but you know that that was another one. Then another example, the guy that um the guy that shot Eric, Khalid Yasm Noah, he had been arrested earlier about a year before. He attacked some US soldiers, also near Mosul, as I recall, and tried to take their weapons. Tried to take one of them's weapon. And they got into hand-to-hand combat. The guy ended up at Abu Ghraib. And then they released him. And uh, then he shot Eric. And Eric used to complain all the time. You need to write about these guys that get caught and released. You know, we're catching them. They're obviously bad guys. And they're releasing them. And then we have to fight them again. And yeah. then Eric got shot by one of those guys.
0: You know? Yeah. Well, that is catching personal. How, do you, have you written about many of these
1: guys? Uh, on... They're the ones that Which,
0: have been caught and released.
1: Yeah, I wrote about them eventually. Uh, uh, Eric was like, you know, telling me every week, you need to write about these guys. And but we were doing so many missions, you know, it's like bugs on your windshield when you're in the swamp. You know what I'm saying? When you get into real combat and it's really going on all the time, it's like you know, every day is a new drama. And so you know what I'm saying? You don't, you, you can't write about everything. Yeah, it's like, yeah. No, you know
0: what I'm saying? Yeah, I guess you just uh, gotta prioritize. Well you, and-
1: way too much going on and um yeah and also sleep sometimes and eat sometimes you know what i mean (laughs) um but um we 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 just did so many missions it was unbelievable but i love that unit i miss them deuce four 124th infantry regiment okay i went back i went back to um washington state and i met with some of the old veterans they were all buffalo soldiers and they took me to lunch and uh they started reading my blog when I was with one twenty fourth. I remember getting an email like, "Look, our boys are in action over there." <laughs> they were they were in the Korean War. They were in the, uh, they were, you know back in the fifties. So,
0: well, I, I would imagine. I mean, you have to have even the. So this was two thousand five. We were talking about or two thousand four. Right. When was the first time you you went as a, uh, a you know, a writer or a journalist? Uh, December, 2004. Okay. And, and, but you've got to have a lot of credibility because you know, you're a, you know, you're a green beret.
1: Well, I don't know if that helped or not <laughs> I, I, I did a little bit because, um, uh, a friend of mine, Rodney Morris, he was a Lieutenant Colonel. We went to high school together. We used to work out together and chase girls together and that sort of thing. And, um, and he joined the army, right? So this would have been when I was about 16 or 17. And, um, he joined up and then he came back from the army. He was a year or two older and he came back and he's like, You need to join the army. You know what I mean? And um, next thing you know, I'm in the army. So, anyway, Rodney made a career out of it. He retired just a couple of years ago. Um, but he was the one that really got me to go over. He used to Skype me all the time. You know how many problems we've had with Skype. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but he used to Skype and email all the time, like, When are you coming to Iraq? And I'd be like, Never. You know what I mean? I'm not coming to Iraq. Are you crazy? And, uh, you know, he's a really close friend, so you can talk like that with yep. him, you know. And um, and so finally, you know, my two friends got killed, Richard Ferguson and, and Scott Helvinston. Um, one got killed on uh, March 30th and the other one on March 31st, uh, 2004. And when they got killed, I went to both of their funerals. One was in um, Colorado and the other was in Florida. You might remember Scott because that was in the news a lot. That was um, – he, he was the Navy SEAL that got killed in Fallujah with a couple of other friends. They were contractors for Blackwater. What's Scott's last up. name? Helvenston. Pelvinston. Okay. We used to play football together and work out together as well. So Scott uh, – good Lord. At his funeral, like every – you wouldn't believe how, how much media came. It was just like out of this world. Um, just like even, even from Japan, it was unbelievable. They were just like, they flocked around because he was a, he was on television a lot and that sort of thing. And he was, um, he was pretty, he's kind of famous actually. He was on that show combat games or what, what's a show called? Uh, anyway, where hmm. the bunch of Navy SEALs and green berets and Delta guys all, you know, have fake fights and beat each other up and stuff. He was on one of those shows pretty often, and um, so he was, was kind of famous, and so, and and then the photos, one of them got a Pulitzer Prize and that sort of thing, and so it was really a big deal. It also, that happened in, you know, March 31st, uh, 2004, and keep in mind, that is precisely when Fallujah started to break, I mean, not Fallujah, but the um, Abu Ghraib, which is real close to Fallujah. You know, the Abu Ghraib uh, prison scandal started to break in April, really break. It had it already been out a little bit, but most people didn't pay attention. So he got killed, and then we attacked Fallujah. I wasn't there yet, um, you know, and did a real big attack on Fallujah, actually. I think it killed like 600 or 1,000 people, actually. And, um, and uh, so that was huge all over the news, and, you know, Abu Ghraib broke that month. And then the war really kicked in that – really got into overdrive after they were murdered, after Scott and the other Blackwater guys were murdered, murdered, killed. It was combat. So I don't yeah. know if you want to call it murder, but, um, but, um, so anyway, you know, I went to their funerals and then my friend, uh, Rodney Morris, who, who was in crit at the time, he's the one that kept telling me to come over. So finally I got on the airplane and went, uh, but that was after the, I, I went, when I saw the second Fallujah attack unfolding in October and November, right? In December. When the second Fallujah attack was called Operation Phantom Fury, I was like, what's going on here? We're losing the war. I'm running around the world doing my thing, uh, which I was having a good life at the time. And I said, you know what? But my country is at war, and I'm just playing out here, you know, traveling in India and that sort of thing. And so I finally went to the war. And when I went, I stuck. That was one of the things. I told Rodney, I'm like, you know me, Rodney. If I go to the war, I'm probably going to (laughs) stick. You know what I mean? (laughs) And and I did. So for how long? Well, over – I spent from 2000 – I got there in December of 2004. I left sometime in mid or late 2005. And uh, then I went back to – then I went to Afghanistan, and then I went back to Iraq and back and forth to Afghanistan, Iraq, Philippines. You know, I, got, I got invited to the war in the Philippines too. And um, so in total, probably four years in combat. But it was spread out between December 2004 and 2011. Okay. And okay. then after 2011, I ended up uh, covering – a lot of the fighting in Thailand. There was a lot of fighting in Thailand. Actually, I almost got hit with an RPG in Bangkok. It was unbelievable. I was like, "Man, I, here I am in Bangkok, of all places in the world. This is where I'm going to die." You know what I'm saying? After <laughs> I've been through all this, all these other places. Yeah,
0: all the alleys in Fallujah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Wow. And uh, good lord. But anyway, I made it.
0: Well, I wanted to. Uh, maybe we'll come back to that on Bangkok. But I wanted to ask you about. Um the little girl Farah from that picture in two thousand five, which did get the uh, Time Magazine top photo of two thousand five, you have the the soldier carrying her. Um, we we tell us that story. It's actually, I mean, it, it it'll you know obviously tug at your heartstrings, and because the girl ended up dying, and um, but it is it is definitely an iconic picture.
1: Yeah, I, I think what happened that day. Well, I think we were in another firefight or something, and then the, there was that. And then the, the unit, it was part of the same unit that I was with. You know, Eric was the commander, uh, and Rob Prosser was the sergeant major. We were together that day as well. And I, I think we were in a firefight. I don't remember. But anyway, we that uh, suicide bomber tracked down another part of the unit that we were not with. They must have been a mile or two away. I don't remember. Uh, but we, the car bomb went off. The kids came out to wave at the soldiers and get candy and that sort of thing. You know, because the soldiers love the kids, um, and the kids love the soldiers. They just get along, you know, like almost adopt each other. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So anytime they would see our vehicles come by, the kids would be running out, which I always like, man, stop throwing candy to the kids. We're going to run over one of these kids one day. You know what I mean? Because they, they run out in the streets, you know, oh, the sure. kids. <laughs> it's like, you know, throw candy to kids, and you're going to end up accidentally running one over. Um, but that's not what happened. They ran out, and um, that suicide bomber came up and hit the vehicle, and um, or did he hit the vehicle, or exploded very close to it? And uh, so we r- race over there, and there's casualties all around, and one kid was was dead, and uh, and then Farah, the little girl, um, a sniper. Uh, Founder. He was supposed to go up to a, you know, find a sniper position, but he he saw her and he's got little kids too, and he. So instead of pushing out to a sniper position, he he grabbed Farah, and he ran back with her and he brought her back to the casualty collection point, right, which is just a point that somebody names and says this is the casualty collection point, right? And so, so all the medics can you know go there, and uh, so he, he brought her back, and then Mark Beeger he's also he also had little children about the same age and um so they're both just like you know uh, so mark picks her up and he starts to run with her to the striker vehicle to get her to the hospital and um, and that was when I took the pictures and um yeah and then she died that day she got blown up I mean, the suicide bomber, he could have waited a block or two to attack us, you know, just man on man, but he did it right in front of the kids. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, right
0: in- uh, you had mentioned in your in your dispatch about how uh, bin Laden was dumped in the sea on the anniversary of her death. I guess that would have been six years, six or seven years later, six years later, maybe.
1: What day did she die? It was May of two thousand and five, right? Right. May I think so. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, yeah, it, it, and we, we went back. We went back, Dad, and we went back to um, we went back to that neighborhood the next day or two days, and the kids came out and they were still like, "Hello," and the, you know, with bandages on and everything. You know what I'm saying? I, they're so resilient. And um, I remember one little girl though; she had a really, you know apprehensive look on her face i mean you know she was very happy to see us and then we got into a firefight that's right so i I remember i told eric i said uh eric that shooting's getting closer and i told him several times but he was talking with the families and stuff right and i was like eric the shooting's getting closer and he's like shut up you're like an old woman (laughs) 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 and then we got into this firefight and um and i remember one iraqi policeman uh he got shot he was okay he got shot in the leg but i think he was okay he was okay when we left um, yeah oh man so many that was uh, so many uh dramas with that unit you know, every every day was a action
0: well you were you were saying how some of the guys had kids the age of some of these who were hurt or killed and and they try to help them and i, I was reading an article today and um, it was about this this doctor. I think he's part German, maybe from you know, from somewhere over in Europe or the Middle East. And um, I think he's the one that, that wrote the account. But you've got these these ISIS guys who have families and have little kids, and they'll leave in the day and they'll go out and they'll murder and they'll rape children, women, you know, adults, whoever. But then they come back home and to their families. I mean, how how can how can these people do that?
1: Man, I don't know. I tell you what, the Al Qaeda types and the ISIS types—they're just, you know, a lot of them do a lot of drugs. By the way, that's important to remember. I mentioned it earlier, but they do a lot of drugs, and um, and they would get caught with drugs all the time, and it was, uh, you know, uh, just. They're savages. I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. they no discipline whatsoever. No discipline what, whatsoever. You know what I mean? The U.S. soldier does that, his buddies will probably shoot him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You're, you're, they're not going to – no way. It's funny. I, I read a book um, a couple years ago, and somebody accused our soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan of raping our way across Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm like, no, it didn't happen. It's like I was there. If it did happen, I would have written about it. Um, but it, you know, no way. <laughs> Good grief. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, in your time deployed with or embedded as a, a, a journalist and or a writer from, two, from late 2004 to, to 2011, what kind of have you seen um, differences in attitudes of our military, uh, maybe in patriotism and, and belief in the mission, anything like that?
1: Well, patriotism is pretty high in the military. I mean, they're, you know, uh, so, I mean, that was, that's one of the pleasures of going out with the infantry. I love to go out with the infantry. Um, infantry is my favorite. Uh, I mean, that's pretty high. And also, morale is pretty high. However, I did see towards the end in 2011, the end for me anyway. Or the end in Iraq or the end in Afghanistan because then I went over to cover the fighting in Thailand and some other places I went to Turkey as well um they um you know they started to realize that the Afghan war is just we're spinning our wheels and um you know and they want to win they they come there to win they don't come there to, you know play around and uh and they can tell that the people in Washington are just you know they don't know what they're doing you know what I mean they just don't have any idea what they're doing yeah. Uh, when 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 General Petraeus took charge in Afghanistan, there was a brief time there, and I was like, okay, maybe we can turn it around. Now we got somebody in here with brains, you know what I mean, and who uh, knows he knows he knows about war, he knows about uh, he knows how to win, and so I, I became my enthusiasm increased for a while 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 Petraeus was there, but you know then he went back and. Took charge of CIA and all that stuff.
0: Didn't you uh, have a conversation with Petraeus and offer some uh, confidence in him, either letter or phone call?
1: Oh, many times, okay. many times. In Iraq and Afghanistan, we still stay in contact. Uh, I, w- I wish he would run for president. I've asked him, you know, like ten times. You're going to run for president? He'll just change the subject. I'm like, how's the weather there? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, he, he, you know, had that thing. That happened, and that's yeah. unfortunate. <laughs>
0: well, there's but been, yeah, that's what, it is unfortunate because of all, much worse has happened with other people than noth- that nothing. Nothing has happened to them all, so they haven't been punished for it. So
1: that's right. That was really unfortunate. I was like, oh man, he, you know, he so, would have been a good. President. He still could be if he if he would run, but he, he will. Every time you bring it up, he just like you know, change the subject.
0: <laughs> well, I, I like the guy too. Uh, and, and, and speaking of that, um, it seems to me, I don't want to be one of these that kind of just jumps on what's hot right now or, but it seems like, uh, I mean, we we've had a lot of generals relieved of their duties under Obama and, you know, I did some quick research. It seems that there has been, you know, kind of a purge in that, but I'd like your opinion it, or is that true?
1: Well, that's something I've thought about as well, that, uh, because every every case I look at, there's actual cause, you know what I mean? Like one admiral, as I recall, he was like counterfeiting poker chips or something, you know what I mean? And then there was some others that were actually, you know, running around with prostitutes in Indonesia and giving away secrets and stuff. So, I mean, every case I've actually looked at, there was actual cause for doing it. And so um, I don't know, quite frankly. A lot of people say there's a purge. And there has been a lot re- relieved, um, but have you seen any cases where there wasn't good cause? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I yeah. wonder.
0: Yeah, that's why I wanted to um, – I didn't want to just go out and, and um, you know just, just say something that's just completely unfounded. So, yeah, I knew you would have a better opinion on that than me and more no, knowledge I've, on it than me.
1: I've talked about it with quite a few officers, um, enlisted people as well. You know I, I talk with soldiers pretty much every day um, and some think there's a purge going on and some say no some say you know and I'm'm I'm, I just don't have enough evidence because again every single case I look at it was actually cause for it like for instance um, there was a one submarine I believe ran into a ship <laughs> you remember that uh, that was out in the Gulf of Mexico um, and then there's just been so many things now, one thing, you know, Gerald McChrystal, I didn't really like him, uh, but I thought that the circumstances of his relief were kind of shaky. I mean, I was glad that he was gone, but uh, at the same time, just, you know, it was he, – he had insulted, you know, President Obama or whatever, or staff or whatever. Next thing you know, he was gone. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I remember that <sighs> you now. Well, what about um –
0: what about the – was it uh, the Army guy? Is it McPart- Partland? The guy who was going to be kicked out of the military because he saved a child that was um, – he had been raped by – I don't know if it was an Afghan or uh, an Iraqi, and he basically roughed him up because he, he knew what had happened, and then he, the Army yeah. was throwing him under the bus.
1: The Special Forces guy um, okay. was in Afghanistan. I don't know him personally. I've never spoken with him to my knowledge. Um, but you know that's not the only case Uh, there's a lot of cases like that because in Afghanistan that's just like normal stuff you know Uh, interestingly the Taliban would not allow that stuff if you can believe that Uh, the the, the Taliban actually were doing a lot of things that we would believe in like for instance not allowing people to do the pedophilia thing (laughs) and um, and not allowing them to grow opium you know what I mean Hmm. Uh, but now, now they do it. Now the Taliban not only allows it, they encourage it. Um, I don't know about the pedophilia thing, though, but uh, yeah. And I remember one time I was in uh, Argandab, and some soldiers, they were very angry. They were, this is 5-2 Striker Brigade combat team. And they were like, this police chief, you know, he's doing this to this kid. And it was a, it was a boy. and uh, And they were like thinking about taking matters into their own hands. And I was just—I I was a lot older than they are, you know. I was just like, "Be careful," you know what I'm saying? Uh, I mean, what you're talking about here is really serious stuff. Um, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you're—you're you're mm-hmm. twisted on that. You know what I mean? Well, there's so the one side you to do something, and then yeah. there's the other side. It's like, but let's not go to prison, boys. Yeah. You know so what it I mean? sounds
0: like you—you you weren't surprised by what this the guy in the story I'm talking about, this special forces guy.
1: What he no, was, I was
0: going I was through. Glad
1: he did it? I was glad that it did it. I was. I mean, it's bad that he then ended up in trouble, um, but then you're, you're twisted on this because, you know, there's it's part of their culture, and as bad as it is, and it's terrible. Um, we still had to deal with them. You know what I mean? So what are you going to do? Have your guys going out and you know, you know? I, I let's put it this way. I agreed with what he did. Sure. <laughs> oh glad. yeah. <laughs> so. And um, and I was sad that he got in trouble for it. So, I mean, there's one side that w- makes you just want to go and just like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna fix you up right now, and you're never gonna do this again, you know? Well, yeah. And then there's side. Then there's another side that goes, and we have to win the war. So what are you gonna do? Yeah. Wow.
0: Well, you know, for someone who has never you know, I've never been in the, the, any branch of the military. You know, that's just, it's just to me, it's a cut and dry. It's like, how could, how could the army even think about disciplining this guy? Uh, I mean, I know there's a lot more to it as you have kind of brought to light a, a little bit, but yeah, that was, it sounds like that's kind of a,
1: they call, they call them Bacha bazi boys and, uh, and they, you know, teach them how to dance and stuff that, you know, act like girls and, and, uh, And it goes way back in history. There's a book called Caravans written by Mishner, which is worth reading. It's a very good book. Uh, Tom Ricks told me to read it. So I read – Tom Ricks is kind of a famous author actually. Uh, He wrote um, The Gamble and Fiasco and he's a really great writer. He's like, Mike, you need to read Caravans. So I I read it, and in the book they're talking about – Bachabazi boys, which is just – and they were just near where this happened, where that special forces guy got in trouble. It was in Kandahar. And um, he's talking about it in the book. So this would have been about like in the 50s, right? And he's talking about how the men just go crazy over these little boys. I mean they get in knife fights and everything else. You know what I mean? It's just like – it's insanity, man. It's like unbelievable. Yeah, that blows me away. Yeah, and, you know, the boys will wear those little bells and stuff like that and and uh, dance and, and they'll have big parties and, you know. And then once they get the first male hairs on them, you know, when they start to be go through puberty, that's when they're finished with bachibazi. Uh, Yeah, it's their culture. I mean, what to do with it.
0: Dang. I'm left without speech.
1: It blows you away, doesn't it? yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, I've, I've been curious about this. Uh, what, how is the U.S. viewed in the rest of the world or in areas that you that you've lived in or and live in?
1: Well, I've been to 75 countries and I've spent half my life overseas. And I've been to 48 states. I've seen the United States as well. I want to go see Alaska though. but anyway, the, the way that we're viewed overseas is it's kind of mixed still a lot of respect especially on the personal level because despite you know the uh, reputation of Americans being you know bad travelers and that sort of thing Americans tend to be very well-disciplined travelers they tend to be very polite uh, very um, people like Americans when they meet you um, so in the countries that I've been in um, we get along really good actually we talk bad about the government but then we talk bad about the government too don't we you know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, right. <laughs> they'll, they'll start criticizing the U.S. government. I'm like, don't even go there. I can criticize it a lot better than you can. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, sing it, brother.
1: What I'm saying. And um, so you know, on a person to person level, you'll be well respected if you travel overseas, um, in almost all in almost all circumstances.
0: Okay.
1: But government wise, government wise, listen. Back when back when everybody wanted to vote for Obama, and I would tell all my Asian friends, I'm like, "You're crazy. You're going to vote for that guy," <laughs> and uh, and uh, and uh, now they now they hate him. Well, good. <laughs> Generally speaking, they, they, I was like, "Well, I told you." <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like, come on, come on, you voted for him again.
1: Okay. <laughs> just, not just once, but twice. Right, right.
0: Uh, what about? Um, I wanted to ask you in, in uh, I guess I read this on your website you the book Unbro- uh, what's it called Unbroken about Louis Zamperini
1: yeah uh,
0: love the book I know you came out and made it issued a challenge to anyone who could because because the author Laura Hillenbrand had said that the, I guess she said the Japs had murdered about 5,000 people and you were saying yeah, that no, it's no, there's
1: don't nothing don't call them Japs please don't call them Japs they they, they hate that and um and Japanese have taken really good care of me. Uh, you know who the 442nd Regimental Combat Team is? Uh-uh. The 442nd Regimental Combat Team is the most decorated unit for its size in the U.S. military, and it consisted of Nisai. Do you know what Nisai is? No, Nisai, I don't. first-generation first Japanese, right? So, um, so back in... World War Two. You know, we incarcerated about 120,000 Japanese, right? And we basically put them in, treated them well, but took their property. I mean, treated them well. We took their property, and we put them in um we put them in camps all over the place. Uh, you know, I think out in Colorado and New Mexico and some other places. Um, so 120,000, we put them in camps because they're afraid of sabotage and that sort of thing. And then still, they joined. The army, right? And they went into the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. You need to look it up, man, and read about these guys. There's a movie about them. You can see it on the online. It's called Go for Broke. You can see it on YouTube. Go okay. for Broke. All right. and go for Broke, and because they would always be like Go for Broke, you know, because they speak with a, a Hawaiian accent because they lived in Hawaii mostly. A lot of them lived in Hawaii and, and California. Anyway, um, so they went off and they went to fight in Europe, and they fought like crazy. They got, they came back with bucket loads of, like, medals of honor, you know, uh, silver stars, the whole. I mean, it was unbelievable what they did and uh, took, I believe, more than 100% casualties, actually, uh, a complete replacement, as I recall. I'm not sure about that, though. Um, but they're worth looking up, and there's that movie, Go For Broke. Watch it. It's in black and white. But um, uh, don't just don't call them Japs, man. They served the United States, and they served it well.
0: They really yeah, okay. did
1: a great. No, I appreciate
0: they, they, that. I, I actually, yeah. unfortunately, I just had I'd seen it written down and just and said it. So yeah, appreciate you. Uh, Let me know which yeah. which which makes sense. I mean, obviously, it's it's not hard to to tell you yeah, that that sounds like a, uh, a derogatory word.
1: It's pretty derogatory, but you know, but if you say that to a Japanese person, they'll just kind of cast their eyes down and say, "Please don't say that."
0: You know what I mean? Or maybe an ignorant, ignorant American or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're great people, really great people. You know, uh, man, if you ever get a chance, go to Japan. You'll love it. And, um, I mean, they're if you lose your phone or something like that, it has a way of coming right back to you. You know what I mean? They're very, very honest uh, people. But, yeah, 442nd Regimental Combat Team. Go for broke. Watch that movie.
0: So, uh, you, I, I, yeah, Will, I wrote that down, because this this is actually some great history, Michael, uh, that I wasn't aware of. Because, um, you, I mean, I know you challenged uh, Laura Hillenbrand's claim there, and, and, and obviously no one has been able to prove.
1: No, that, it didn't happen. It just yeah. did not happen, period. It's just a lie. Uh, and it's also a lie that they kidnapped 200,000 women. It just simply did not happen. I've been to 11 countries researching that topic. Malaysia, Indonesia, Myanmar, Thailand, uh, Japan, Australia, Philippines, United States, a couple more, uh, and it just, um, it just did not happen. Uh, it's just a big lie, and the, and the Koreans and Chinese are putting up these statues, making it sound like Japanese were around, you know, kidnapping all these sex slaves. It, it, it did not happen. There was 19 that were kidnapped down in Indonesia. That's true. And... Um, and the soldiers were caught, and they were punished by the Japanese. Uh, and uh, and there was a few in Philippines as well. They were also punished uh, and caught. You know, But there was not – it wasn't 200,000. I was out in so many villages, you wouldn't believe it, You know, asking. I was like, who's the oldest person in the village? Because I want to talk with people over the age of 90. You know what I mean? I've talked with more people over the age of 90 in the last two years than I have in my whole life combined. No, I and I you would know. just – I would just go out to the villages and I'd be like, who's the oldest person in the village? And, uh, and, and then, uh, uh, you know, you won't believe how welcoming they are in so many of these uh, countries and these villages. I'll just be like, yes, come in. You know? And um, I have to bring interpreter, of course. Um, and I found one lady who I believe was authentically uh, kidnapped and raped. But otherwise, it was just all a big lie. And the, the thing on Tinian Island, you're talking about Tinian Island with Laura Hillenbrand. There's a statue, not a statue, there's a monument down there. And it's written on the monument that they killed, Japanese killed 5,000 Koreans, right? But keep in mind, Tinian Island is the island from which we launched the two missions on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right? Mm-hmm. Where we dropped mm-hmm. the atomic bombs home. And we also had four major Airports there with huge uh, 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 runways, so that you could take off multiple aircraft from all the, you know, all the runways at once, and you know, get over to Japan and bomb Japan and get back to the islands because they would launch missions from multiple islands at once, right? And so, keep in mind, from in those years, Koreans were Japanese; they were Japanese citizens, right? Uh, President Park who is the current president Park, her father, also president Park from Korea was a Lieutenant in the Japanese army. I mean, so, I mean, the Koreans were actually Japanese soldiers. And when it came to cruelty to American soldiers and British and Dutch as well, a lot of that came from Korean Japanese, right? It's still Japanese fault because they're wearing Japanese uniform, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. But they're, uh, they were very, very cruel to our people. And, um, And, you know, things like the Bataan Death March, that's totally real. I was in Bataan last year actually researching on this. I mean, that's obviously real. I mean, that happened. That was a war crime. Um, But then a lot of the other accusations are not true. Like the accusation of murdering 5,000 people in Tinian, it's written on a monument down there. Uh, And this general, I've forgotten his name, but back in about the 90s or so, he wrote in his – company in his uh unit newsletter he's like you know japanese murdered these five thousand koreans because he saw it on the monument right if you want something to become true quote unquote put it on a monument you know what i mean yeah people start repeating it but it's not true you just build a monument so he repeated it and then there was a guy named uh eric lash uh nash eric lash nash anyway he worked for this company in north carolina and um and he was quoted as saying that this happened down there. So I contacted the company, uh, contacted, you know, everybody. It could not get in contact with him, though. But he did not – clearly did not make the statement. He was not even there when it was attributed to him. And it, plus he was there like in you know in, in the 90s. You know what I mean? It was like uh, long after the war. So anyway, we found in the U.S. archives um, census because, you know, we invaded – we invaded Tinian in what, about – what was that? Uh, about June of – two thousand May of 2000 – or 1944, right? Or 1945. I think it was May of 1945. I don't recall. Um, something like that. So we invaded Tinian. Um, and, you know, there, there was a huge – actually a tank battle on that little island, if you can believe that. And, um, and, uh, and so – our guys started taking census every month. We found the census. The Koreans were alive. There was more than 2,000 alive. Uh, and there was no allegations whatsoever of any mass murder of Koreans. No allegations. And so, you know, if they actually committed a war crime, say it. Baton, war crime. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But Tinian didn't happen. It's a lie.
0: What, what uh – what Country or group? Do you think is the U.S.'s biggest threat?
1: Hmm. Either China or Russia. Uh, China. Um, I would say China. Um, you know, China's on the march, and um, and they're very capable. Well, they're not as capable as we are at this point, but they will be. I mean, they're on that direction, whether that be military, uh, economic, um, or in space, for instance. Um, I would, yeah, China. I mean, biggest threat. Okay, that depends on how you want to define threat, though, as well, right? Uh, I mean, some rogue nation with a, you know, a weapon of mass destruction can be a pretty big yeah, threat right, right, organization. But but when it comes to overall competition, that would be China.
0: I, I couldn't argue with you there for sure. I wanted to ask you maybe one more thing, and then get to uh, just and briefly get to your. Kind of your background in your late teen years, but uh, th- there's a story that you and I have actually already talked about before. But there's a there's a an American that was kidnapped in China, and uh, he was over there visiting, and so it's and he was he was proclaimed as dead, and his family still believes that he's alive, and so they say there is they have good evidence to believe that now he's in North Korea teaching. Maybe working for Kim Jong Un, and uh, he's married, has kids, and so they're saying that there's this. uh, This happens regularly, you know, between China and North Korea, maybe other countries too. So, I wanted to get your take on that.
1: Well, I I don't have any knowledge about his particular case, but it is a fact that North Koreans have uh, kidnapped Japanese. And taking them back, and they've done the same thing, actually. They uh, make them teachers and stuff. And so they'll be teachers, and they actually get married. And it's kind of uh, kind of strange, actually. Uh, but they but that's what they've done. And Japanese uh, still LDP, the Liberal Democrat Party, actually, in Japan, they actually wear little buttons uh, to, you know, like as a, let's say, a vigil to the people that have been kidnapped. Yeah, they, they actually came to Japan and kidnapped them. Pretty pretty wild stuff. Imagine that. I mean, the guy, the American though. I don't know anything about his case. I I'm surprised if we're not doing huge diplomatic efforts to get him back. Though.
0: Yeah, you'd think so. I know his parents and family felt like when they did go over there initially, that um, that they kind of that they they had these search dogs out and they had these flyers up and made it appear as if they were had been really searching for him but they didn't feel like they actually... They thought it was all for show. And they were witnesses that said, yeah, we saw him on this trail. He was hiking here. But then when they were questioned later, they denied it. So they, they feel like someone got to them and said, you know, obviously don't speak. So anyway, yeah. it's just very, very interesting.
1: Yeah, don't know anything about his case, but it's definitely happened to Japanese. That's a fact.
0: Okay. Uh, so I wanted to... Maybe close with this, Michael. You have I, I've read part of your book, Danger Close. For sure, I've read chapter one, which is which is very captivating. So, uh, which I know you got a, you got in a bar fight while you were in the army, and it turned out. I, actually, I don't know how it ended up turning out after uh, after chapter one, but um, a man ended up dying. Do you mind talking about that?
1: Yeah, I was nineteen. I just Graduated that week from the Special Forces course at Fort Bragg and I went up to uh, Ocean City, Maryland with a friend of mine named Steve Shawless. We were – Steve and I have been all over the world together. We were in Afghanistan together, that sort of thing later, much later. Um, and uh, that guy, he was just causing a lot of problems. He'd been in three fights that day already. He had already destroyed the kitchen where he worked. He worked in some restaurant and uh, he was just like out of his mind and – he but first he was going after Steve actually. Then he started to come after me and uh he attacked me and so I punched him a few times and he died. I couldn't believe it. But you know You know what I'm saying? Yeah. it's just a fist fight and the guy dies. And so um yeah, that was not good. And so um well, I got arrested. I turned myself in and uh and then I got charged, but then they cleared me later and i stayed in the army four more years so i mean the army investigated it and so did the civilian police and all, all the charges were dropped but that taught me a lot about the media because media come you know they come in and they'll be like green beret does such and such you know what i'm saying oh, yeah and they're like whoa 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 that's not what happened um you know this guy was clearly uh trouble and i didn't mean to kill the guy that just happened and um that's the way it went. And so um well, I stayed in the Army four more years. You know, went to language school and all kinds of things after that. But you know, I was very lucky though, because other people came out to help me, like this uh, lawyer named Daniel Long. He became a judge later. It's interesting because when I became a war correspondent, Mr. Long didn't realize I was a war correspondent. And he said, he emailed me at one point. He's like, um, hey, I heard you're a war correspondent or something like that in his email. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, hey, Judge Long, what's up? He was a judge. And um, and he goes, I use your case to admonish young people who get into fights and say you, you never know who you're messing with. He looks like really young and all that, but he can fight, you know. And, um, and he said – so he was admonishing some young uh, guy that had been in a fight or whatever. And the defense attorney for the guy that had been in the fight was like, "Hey, I read that guy's blog," and, uh, and <laughs> Judge Law was like, "Really? He's a war correspondent." So then he, we ended up getting on the phone and talking. And he, you know, he was so good to me. You know what I mean? There was, it was kind of, it was bad times and good times. It was bad because first of all, the guy died, and um, and then you know the things that fall out from that. But good also, you know, some a lot of good people came out to help and that sort of thing. I'll never forget.
0: Yeah, how, how did you deal with that? You know, emotionally, mentally.
1: Man, I was a soldier. You know, uh, it's just that's uh, the way it goes. And um, I mean, I didn't did not intend to kill him. It was just you know fist fight. The guy died. The way it goes. Well, you got to keep you got to keep in mind for the next four years. What I trained to do was parachute into Poland and kill Soviets. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we we were not uh, Boy Scouts. You know? Yeah, uh, didn't you know? Didn't want to hurt the guy. Didn't want to kill him. Didn't want to fight. We were we were looking for girls. You know, I was nineteen years old. Uh, imagine going through a year of all that hard training, and you're nineteen. You know, you're thinking about girls. Are you thinking about going out and getting in a fight? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you so make that, it
0: very clear. I mean, my
1: mind is to get into a fight.
0: Yeah, you you tried every way to avoid it. So a lot of a lot of great details in that in that book about it that people can read. Uh, so it's 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 one of those things when you start reading that chapter, you cannot stop. Well, I, I, it, it's it's been a a pleasure. I, I, I could I could talk forever with you. While we we're coming up on an hour now, and so I guess we'll go ahead and end it. But but I mean, what in closing would you like to say maybe about you and about? Uh, where we can find you, and shoot, anything else you want to say, Michael?
1: You know, I put up a lot of stuff on Facebook that people might be interested in. A lot of it's just local observations in some country. It might be Thailand or Japan or Australia, Philippines. Uh, Man, I tell you what, I want to come home though. I've been overseas so long now. I've been overseas more than 20 years. It's time to come home.
0: Well, when are you?
1: I'm not sure. Maybe in the <laughs> next year, <or> so. <laughs> you know. But I, I, I love Thailand. It's not that I don't like Thailand uh, and Japan, and in some of these other countries. I really enjoy, but uh, you know, at some point, you just want to come home. Sure. You know what? Another one of my friends down in Australia was saying the same thing. We're from the same town. He was saying the same thing. He's been overseas for about the same amount of time. He's like, it's time to come home. <laughs> well, with you being a
0: Southern boy, do you ever just crave some biscuits and gravy?
1: Oh, no. Grits.
0: Grits. grits. Okay. And, uh,
1: at one point, I was like getting ready to fly back to America to get some grits, man. was <laughs> <laughs> like I was getting a grits, Jones, going on. Do you want me and, to uh, send
0: you some? I'll, I'll get some to you.
1: <laughs> brother, I got pounds of them now. <laughs> I got pounds of them. I got them right here. And, um, yeah, I, I was like, I got to get some grits. <laughs> yeah That's funny but it'd be it'd be good to get some buttermilk biscuits though too you know oh yeah yeah i love you know biscuit. yeah not not too many people can make good buttermilk biscuits though you know
0: no <laughs> hey one more thing i wanted to ask you is uh this is something i've always been curious about i've talked about with a few people how have the rules of engagement changed since you were you were in the military, and then, you know, since your time now as a, as a war correspondent.
1: Well, rules of engagement, you got to be careful with that because, um, okay, let's talk about Iraq as an example, right? If you drive up from Kuwait and you come through that southern part of Iraq and go up you know, up to Baghdad and up to you know, through Tikrit and up to Mosul, the rules of engagement are changing in every battle space you go through. So down in the south, the rules of engagement are very strict, or they were. I'm I'm talking about, let's say, 2006 or seven, right? Um, So in every battle space you go in, they're different, right? So it's not like there's a rules of engagement for Iraq or for Uh Afghanistan. It's rules of engagement for that area that you're at. And also the rules of engagement can change dramatically from one week to the next. For instance, when we did Operation Arrowhead Ripper in – in bakuba in uh 2007 uh at first the rules of engagement were very lax i mean we were very kinetic i mean like company commanders could call airstrikes that sort of thing uh, so that went on for about a week and then we started getting things under control and so then the rules of engagement got tightened down right and so um and then they got tightened down tightened down more and more and more but when we did the initial attack? The rules of engagement were very loose. Actually, uh, it was basically anything that's within the law you can do. You know what I mean? I mean, you can't call a nuclear strike, of course, mm-hmm. but I mean, but you can call, you know, you know, uh, a guy in his you know twenties is calling airstrikes and you know, that sort of stuff. Um, so it's um, so it changes, and same with Afghanistan, for instance. Um, in southern Afghan, let's say Helmand Helmand Province, uh, rules of engagement could be. Um, pretty loose there at times actually especially in the early part but then you go up to different places and they were like Nangarhar and they were really tight so so you got to be careful people say oh rules of engagement this rules of engagement that but the rules of engagement it's like looking at the like looking at a map of the United States every state there's different rules of engagement you know yeah and so um and and again they also not only change in space they change in time like within you know one week they can change one of the things you got to be careful about too is i mean imagine somebody comes to your town and some foreign soldier and he you know shoots one of your family or friends you're going to want some revenge right Mm -hmm. um and in afghanistan and especially with pashtun culture they call it badal 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 means revenge right and they are, like, obligated to get some revenge. I mean, if you make a mistake and you shoot somebody at a traffic control stop or whatever, uh, they're going to get some revenge. And that's going to end up being more casualties for us, right? So, again, you're in one of these situations where, as a commander, you don't want to create more badal. You don't want to create more atmosphere of revenge. And you don't want to kill innocent people, obviously. Um but at the same time, you don't want your people to get killed because you're too strict, right? Yeah, yeah you know, because sometimes, you know, sometimes they can get really close and you don't see that weapon until it's too late. Um, so, you know, what do you do? So the commander's in a very tight situation. But again, some places it would be very loose. Sometimes it was very loose. Sometimes it was very strict.
0: Okay. Thank you. Yeah, and, and and Michael, thank you so much for you know, for serving our country and then for doing what you do now for for letting the rest of us know what's going on, you know, from uh from being right there first person. Um you've got a huge following. I mean on Facebook you've got over four hundred thousand followers. Am I correct on that?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. It's a lot now, isn't
0: it? Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> Uh, you you are extremely intelligent. I mean, I've 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 really looked forward to this interview for for a long time ever since that you agreed to do it. So so thanks for making some time and uh, um, it's been an honor. You're a great American. Uh, anything anything in closing you'd like to say?
1: Nothing, but I'm coming home soon. <laughs> it's great talking with dad.
0: Hey, just, just you can just throw in some Ozzy, Mama. I'm coming home.
1: Mom, I'm coming
0: home. Hey, thank you, sir, very much.
1: Not bad. Bye.